You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. End of that, right? I mean, it's just kind of kind of that time of year. It's a it's a season, and, and I got a little confused the other night. I was listening to the news, and they said, we are in between summer and fall. Like, I've never really thought about there being an in-between. It just kind of confused me. And, and so I, I really don't know what they meant. They said, yeah, we're in that, that no man's land. I'm like, I know exactly where we're at. Yeah, and it really depends on how you measure which, which version you go with. Summer ends at either the end of August or the summer ends on the 20, this year, the 22nd of September. But it really doesn't matter. What we, what we kind of mark it by is when does school start? Because everything kind of revolves around that, right? Um, the aisles at Walmart and Target and all those other places and anywhere else you buy school supplies, it kind of revolves around that because they're just packed with um, pencils and pens. And if you're kind of like me, it's like, oh, it's good. They're on sale. It's time to buy more and, and get excited because, you know, I've got this array of pens and, and stuff. And if you're kind of an office junkie, office stuff junkie. So, so the, the season is kind of marked by those kind of things. It's also a time where we make new commitments, isn't it? I mean, we go through the process of altering our schedules. No longer can you sleep till, till mid-morning or noon, if some people do that during the summer. Um, this is a time where you have to readjust that and, and actually show up a whole lot earlier in the day than that if you want to either have a job or a grade that passes. So you begin to change change your routines and change the things that, that go on. Uh, you make new commitments. You maybe refresh some goals. I know at the beginning of school, we always kind of looked at it and say, okay, this year we're going to write down when, when we had kids at home, we're going to write down your homework. You're going to write that down and we're going to check it every night. And we're going to make sure you get it done and we're going to get it in. And, and you know, four days into the school year, it's like, man, that's exhausting. And so we kind of, you know, alter it a little bit. But when we think about this time of year, it's just a matter of reevaluating where we've been and what we want for the next year. And I would say that's, that ought to be true in our spiritual life as well. As we kind of stand back and we say, okay, this is what has happened over the past year. What do we want it to look like over this next year? Are we going to make new commitments? Are we going to jump into something that is a little different? See, the, the future hinges on what you decide. If this is really a mark of a new time of new commitment and, and changing things, then, then maybe the future hinges on what you do over the next week or two weeks or three weeks. And so we're going to look at, as we continue in our, in our study of who's your one, we're going to look at what it means to be on mission. And so if you would turn to Luke chapter 5, and we'll start reading at verse 17. And chapter 5 is full of some full of some episodes, some stories in the life of Jesus as Dr. Luke records this for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we start in verse 17 and we're going to read through verse 26. 
So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, would you stand as we read God's Word together in this passage? It says, One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, it's interesting Luke writes that because, you know, he writes this in looking back, so we have this, but in the moment, does Luke know that? And so, and some of the men, and some men were carrying on a bed or a pallet or a, a, like a couch, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him being Jesus, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof And let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he, Jesus, said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Do you want to see remarkable things? Do you want to see God do remarkable things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this episode in the life of Jesus that Luke records for us. Father, we thank you for the men that brought the paralytic. We thank you for the paralytic. And and even we thank you for those that were sitting there listening to Jesus teach. But Father, more than that, we ask that you would, in this time, because we thank you for this time, that you would speak to us from this passage. And that we would be changed in some way. And we would be obedient to what you call us to. Uh, as we listen to your word and hear from your spirit what has to happen in us. And so, Father, speak to us during this time. We ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, in this passage, you get the scene. Jesus is teaching, right? And he's got the Pharisees and some scribes. He's got some religious leaders that are there, but there's a crowd around him as well. And as he's teaching, these, this group of men, it really doesn't say how many, but I don't know really how many it takes on a, on a pallet to bring somebody in and be steady with it. But there's, there's I would think, at least four that, that were bringing this paralytic to Jesus, and they get to the door and they can't get in. And it creates an issue. You see, we, we deal with missions all the time, don't we? Now, I'm not talking about missions like our flags represent missions and that kind of thing, but we deal with missions. We understand what a mission statement is, don't we? It's 
something that is there. It's a statement that reflects a purpose or a vision for a particular thing. And so I want to go through some vision statements. And what I want you to do is I want you to just think in your mind, has this company fulfilled their mission statement or are they doing well with accomplishing their purpose? So the first one is IKEA, to create better everyday life for the many people. And I, and I read that and I went, the many people? And I just kind of went, oh yeah, I remember Ikea's from somewhere else and everything in the store is Swedish. So, so it's like, okay, that statement made sense. But does Ikea do that? Okay, the second one is Facebook, to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. How are they doing? Depends if they're editing your page or not, right? All right. Uh, Here's one that'll be fun. Google, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Doing okay. There's so much in these these different companies and what they do, but this is their basis. And um, and here's the last one, which just kind of goes a different direction. Harley-Davidson, to fulfill dreams of personal freedom. I don't, you know, that's, it's loud freedom, but it's freedom, right? Um, I was, I was really, I, I contacted Gary Anderson this week and just, uh, I really wanted to have the Har- his Harley up on stage. And uh, I thought, you know, I promise I won't start it. I promise I won't ride it back up the aisle. Um, but, uh, but I really wanted to have it here because of that. But is, is Harley doing that? They creating, they're creating some space for personal freedom. And so, so as we think about mission statements, let me ask you a question. As we start the school year, do you have a mission statement as a family? Do you have a mission statement for your kids? Uh, let me give you some, some ideas on this because the mission statement, as we look at those different ones, they become measuring sticks for how well an organization does. So if we had a mission statement for our family or our kids, we could actually have a measuring stick, measuring stick for how well we do life during this school year. So, so here's one that's a possible. If you have children, this may be a possible mission statement to help each child, figuring maybe you have more than one, but, or my child, help my child to survive each day. That seems reasonable, right? Just survive. I mean, we, I, I, I love this idea of taking a picture of your child at the beginning of the school year and they get, you know, the little piece of paper or the, or the big plaque that you've, you, you kind of had for years that kind of marks the first day of school and you take that picture and then you have one at the end of the year. And, and it's not exactly like what happens with a presidential um, somebody is a president where they take the picture at the beginning and then you look that they're, you know, like nine million times grayer at the end of their four years. Um, it's not quite like that, but it's kind of cool to look at the, the difference. And so maybe survival is a good way to do it. If you don't have children, your, your mission may be to avoid school zones during the morning and afternoon rushes. Or avoid the police in school zones if some of you have a propensity toward a heavy foot. Um, so that may be possible, but let me give you some, let me give you some, maybe some, some other ones that would help. Um, what about to support each child in the journey of discovering God's personal plan? What if you had that for the year? 
Say, I understand that there's going to be grades involved and homework and all that kind of stuff. But what I'd really like to see as a parent, as you go throughout this year, I'd like to see you develop in your journey toward understanding God and what he wants in your life. Maybe that's a possible. And, and maybe it's, um, maybe if you don't have a child, maybe it's um, considering this mission statement. To support the work of preschool children and student ministry throughout the year so that we could see students' journeys in discovering God's personal plan. So nobody's really off the hook in here, whether you've got a child or not. And, and those kind of mission statements, and you develop your own. I'm not saying you have to adopt those, but those kind of mission statements kind of keep us on track. They they become this, this thing that you can prominently display at home that you kind of say, okay, am I doing this? And, and how well is it going? And so if we were to do that, what would it mean to us? You see, the, the guys that were carrying the man on the stretcher, the paralytic, when they brought him to Jesus, they were men driven by a mission. They had a mission. What was the mission of the men carrying the paralytic? Simple, isn't it? This is not real complicated. It's to bring one man to Jesus. That's it. Our job, we're going to grab the corners, we're going to grab the middle, we're going to grab whatever it is, and we're going to bring one man to Jesus. And so they, they do that. And so I want to ask you, what drives you? Do you have a mission? What moves you into action? What defines you? This is what one pastor said, and I don't have a name that goes with it. It says, but if the size of your vision doesn't intimidate you, it's probably insulting to God. So what's your mission? The second thing is the men had expectations of the mission. So what did they expect? What did these guys expect? They grabbed their friend, and they bring them on a pallet to Jesus, but what, what can they reasonably expect? Well, maybe it's, it's very simple. They expected that Jesus would heal their friend. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line, isn't it? We're bringing him so he can get healed. If we can just get him to the front of Jesus, then things will change for the guy on the mat. And then Jesus had a reputation to uphold. And at least with this group of men, when they bring them, there's an expectation that Jesus is going to do that. Maybe if, if Jesus sees our friend, that he will have empathy or pity on him, and he will heal him. But what are the risks for these guys that bring this paralytic to Jesus? What's the risk? Rejection? Maybe even their reputations? Um, intimidation? I mean, you bring a paralytic to Jesus on a mat and you understand Jesus is doing some teaching and right there are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're a little bit intimidating, aren't they? But these guys work all the way through it. See, if the mission is important, the risks are worth it. If the mission's important, the risks are worth, worth it. But if you don't pursue the mission, what does that convey? It can, if you scrub the mission, what does that say about it? That, that it was too risky? 
I mean, we look at NASA when we think of scrubbed missions and we think, well, that was probably good to scrub that mission. They did not need to go up in the middle of a thunderstorm with a rocket. We understand that risk is too great. But, but what else does it convey? It, it may convey that we just don't care enough about the mission if we're willing to give up on it quickly. You think about the different missions in Scripture where you see guys that were called out to do something that God wanted them to do. And Moses hands over the leadership of a nation to this, to this mentee, Joshua. And what's Joshua told to do? Very early on in his career, as he's the leader of a whole group of people, he's told to take the group across the river, march around a city, and scream. That's a stupid battle plan. But that's what he's told to do. Is it risky? Yeah, take a whole group of people and march around a city with no weapons? Yeah, fairly risky. But he's asked to do that. And I know some of you talked about Elijah this morning and, and the prophets of Baal. And you remember that story. Elijah's there and he does not have an army with him. But there's a good group of guys on the other side of that fence that are wanting to make a mockery of Elijah. And Elijah is sitting there and they say, okay, we'll have a kind of a battle here. We'll, we'll set up a sacrifice and you call on your gods or God to come and consume this sacrifice. And so I, I, I love the way scripture teaches and, and kind of conveys the reality of it because as the prophets of Baal are doing their thing, what does Elijah do? He trash talks doesn't he? Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe you ought to yell a little bit louder so that he can hear. Maybe it'll wake him up and he'll do something. And after they cut themselves and do all that kind of stuff, Elijah said, all right, that's enough. My turn. And so they soak it down till it's saturated and Elijah prays and the, and the sacrifice and the water is consumed by God. David, in his infamous battle with Goliath, undoubtedly David was either stupid, ignorant, arrogant, or listening to God. He was one of those. Great risk and a miraculous outcome. And we could go through others. Jonah going to Nineveh and Daniel standing up in the middle of a culture that didn't even like him. Paul and Silas saying we're going to obey God rather than man. I've got a little plaque in, in the windowsill of my office. It says that ne to never confuse the will of the majority with the will of God. And yet that's hard to live out, isn't it? When you've got screaming, whether, whether I'm not meaning y'all, but it, just, it was just hand motion, okay? But when you have that, it becomes more difficult to listen to God. And yet Jesus was on mission, and we ought to be on mission. And what would happen if Jesus hadn't fulfilled his mission? I mean, you had Peter saying, ain't no way you need to be a, a suffering servant. And yet Jesus does it. He goes to the cross, and, and although the risk was really great, Jesus did it anyways on our behalf. He went to the cross and died for us. And then he rose again to give us a, a living hope so that we could know that there is life. 
And there's life beyond the grave, and we can trust that. This is what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12. He says in verse 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Sometimes it is hard to follow the mission. I think about those four guys. And it was hard, it may have been hard for them to do that. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we need to understand what His mission is. His mission is clear in Luke 19.10. Came to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that the mission that we need to adopt? Isn't that the mission that should drive our lives? I mean, we've talked about being a disciple of Jesus and what it meant that you were so close to him that you took on all the mannerisms and all the answers and everything about the person of Jesus. If you're going to be a follower of his, you take on all those things. So if this is his mission, this is also our mission. And so the question, do we have enough faith in God to expect him to work? Or... Do we just approach it and say, it's not worth it, or it's too hard, or it's too great. I don't need to do that. Question for us is, do we desire for God to do something great? Third thing, the men encountered obstructions to the mission. Well, what's an obstruction? It's something that gets in the way, doesn't it? Now, we could put the biggest guys in, in this room this morning and put them in the aisle and let me take a running start, and I'll bet you I don't make it to the door. They would be obstructions. And we run into obstructions all the time. Obstructions, anything, anything that impedes or prevents passage or progress, we run into those all the time, and they may be physical, but they also may be spiritual or emotional or intellectual. And we can get angry and frustrated by those things. We can get put out. We can be tempted to quit and even complain about the obstructions. We went to Florida this week. We sat in, on the airport on the tarmac for two hours in Orlando watching lightning. Now I want to tell you, it's not the most comforting thing to be stuck in a metal tube in the middle of an open field when there's lightning. But it's where we were and it's not where we wanted to be. And so, could have all those emotions. You see, we want, we want the mission of God to be relatively easy for us because easy seems to make sense. Wouldn't God make it easy for us to follow Him? Wouldn't God make it easy for us to move down certain paths? And I want to tell you, maybe not. When I look at some of the illustrations in Scripture, and some of the things that, that guys went through to fulfill the mission of God, I think that sure wasn't easy. That doesn't seem to fit the pattern of following Jesus, even in our culture. We, in, in fact, and this is not a blanket theological statement, okay? So, so don't take it like that because we, we can pull any scripture out and make a theology from it or a doctrine from it. 
But I want to tell you, we pray for open doors. We pray that God would open doors and close doors. Now, I want to make this statement. I want you to listen very carefully. An open door does not always equal God's will. An open door does not always equal God's will. In fact, I think there are times when a closed door may be more of an indication of God's will because it requires us to step in places that we are uncomfortable and need to lean on Jesus with. You go, I don't know. Now, I'm not telling you that every open door is not. I'm not telling you an open door is not God's will. I just want to be. I want us to be very careful that we don't make blanket statements about. Things like that, when you look in Scripture and say, God closed doors and He opened doors, and, and even some of the things that seemed to be closed were God's will. Look at this story. There were obstacles in here. Obstructions, the crowd, the location. Maybe even the strength of the men. Because it says that they didn't just take him on this pallet and walk him right into Jesus and lay him down and say, hey, there he is. It's not what he did. And that's not what they did. What they do? They climbed up on top of the roof. They got up there and then found a way in. And we kind of cut short things when it's difficult. I want to ask you a question. If these men that are carrying the paralytic don't follow through with the mission that God had given them, what happens? Paralytic stays on his mat, doesn't he? Never gets in front of Jesus. Never is healed. At least not from what we can tell. There may be greater consequences when we don't work through the obstruction when we don't pursue the mission that God has given us. I remember when I was called to, called to ministry and to move off to seminary. I remember sitting in the parking lot of the apartment complex where I was living. My car, I had a, a 19 blah, 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 Skylark. Skylark ought to give it away. It was a four-door. It was the first car I ever had with power windows and power stuff. Um, I wouldn't say it was a great car. Deb and I prayed it into a parking lot to trade it later on. But I had that thing packed. It looked like I was carrying block for construction in the back of it. It was just kind of weighed down. I was ready to move to seminary. And I got out, started getting ready, and discovered that the water pump was messed up. Now... I was broke. I didn't have any money. I, was, I had quit my job. I was ready to go off to seminary, and I really didn't have like this, this pile of cash in the bank. And so fixing the water pump and the time it took in the parking lot with that thing packed was not where I wanted to be. You know, kind of worked through that, got on the road, showed up in, in South Carolina, and was given a key to a place so that I could move into my room. And I'm not really sure what the seminary was even thinking, allowing me to come in because I had no money. I kind of showed up on faith. Should I have stopped? That's the question. 
And I, and I get to ask that question. Should I have stopped? Because actually stopping would have been a lot easier than fixing the water pump and packing the car and moving up there and doing all those things. I, I had an offer for a job that would have paid me 50% more than what I made at the end of my seminary career. And I could have just turned around, stayed in Atlanta, gone back to that job and had an increase of about $8,000. It wouldn't have been a bad pay increase. But it's not what God called me to do. Yet if I had followed the idea that, that obstructions prevent us from following God, I would have just stayed. Sometimes God calls us to work through the obstacle or the obstruction. And what, and what did it do to these guys? What did it do to the faith of the four men carrying the paralytic to Jesus? It increased their faith, didn't it? Working through that meant that they needed to be very creative in how they got this, this paralytic into the presence of Jesus. They had to work through a difficult situation. And, and in that, God showed them something that was miraculous. When God, when God calls you to a mission and you face obstructions, sometimes it is then we learn to lean more intentionally on, G on Jesus for the grace, strength, and perseverance. So these guys carry the paralytic up onto the roof, getting ready to do something different. And can you imagine the scene? Jesus is just in the middle of teaching Pharisees what God said. And as Jesus is teaching, bits of dirt and clay begin to fall from the sky on the inside of a building. Now, you know, if, if things started falling from the ceiling in here while I'm talking, it would freak me out. I mean, I, I'd, it would at least get my attention. Yeah, I've, I've had people want to throw things at me while I was preaching and, and different things, but, but never did it just kind of fall from the ceiling. And, and yet that's what was happening. And as, as the, the opening started getting there, because you drop a paralytic on a mat through the ceiling, the, the opening is not small. So it may start out where you have this little beam of light coming in and there's some dirt that comes in, and, but there's no storms in the area and, and the hole just keeps getting bigger. And, and I kind of wondered, did Jesus continue to just talk or did he just stop? Go, I don't really know what's going on with the roof, which would be kind of weird for Jesus to say, I don't really know. But, but he's in that spot. Pharisees are like, I don't know what's going on. But there seems to be a hole in the roof, and eventually they drop this guy down. It's, it's really a rude way to approach Jesus, isn't it? We're just kind of interrupt you. It would have been easier for them to say, we're not going to do this because it's, interrupt, it's interrupting some teaching. We ought to just wait for a more convenient time or a more convenient place to do this. And so verse 19, they led him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And the whole scene changes. Verse 20 says, seeing their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. Paralytics dropped in for what reason? To get healed, right? Does Jesus do that? Not at this point, does he? 
kind of blowing away the expectations of the guys who drop them in and say, well, that's not what we had in mind. They may have been disappointed with those first words of Jesus. Fourth thing I want us to see is the men witnessed results exceeding the assumptions. So they had the assumption that Jesus would just heal their friend. And this whole idea of forgiving sin is not what we came for. See, the greatest need of any man is to be reconciled to God. Jesus understood the effects of sin and how it destroys a union or connection with God the Father. And so although these guys had in mind a physical healing, Jesus had in mind a spiritual healing. And so that's what he addressed first. He addressed the inward part of the man rather than the outward part of the man. What would have happened if Jesus had healed him of being a paralytic? First thing, let's get up. Let's run out. This is good. Jesus worked on the inside first. It says in verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to reason. The word reason there means to dispute internally. You know what that means? It means you have a conversation with yourself, right? I'm going to play both sides of this. I'm going to, have, I'm going to play, the, play the pros and cons game in my mind and come up with a solution. So the scribes and Pharisees began to reason. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Whoa, you didn't know that. Yes, I did. Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or get up and walk. So you'll understand that the Son of Man has authority, that jurisdiction then I'm going to tell you, get up, take your pallet, and get out of here. Go home. So verse 25, immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. It's, it's not an escape game. It's the paralytic got up, picked up his mat, and, 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 and I can just imagine, it was just kind of weird, this guy who'd been laying there, couldn't get up, gets up and he walks through the crowd, the crowd that he couldn't get through lying on the mat before. Almost like parting the Red Sea for a paralytic that's now healed. Verse 26, they were all struck with astonishment, began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we've seen remarkable things today. God reshaped the mission of the men. They were available vessels. So the question is, how available are we? God does does not move us to meetings. God moves us into ministry. We're not here because we're not in this room as an end all. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to sit on pews every single week and not do what God has called us to do. This is not God's call to show up for church. It's not at all. It's not God's call for you to come to Bible study. It's God's call for you to be on mission for Him. This becomes a catalyst for driving us that way and encouraging us that way. It becomes that place where we can encourage one another and worship Him together corporately. But we are set to be a people on mission, not a people that sit. 
there are ways that you can do that. Operation Christmas Child is one of them. The Kids Impact Project Wednesday night when we go to Cameron Park, that's another one. Show up, plant some plants, plant some flowers, pray. There's opportunities to be on mission. The transforming power of the gospel may start as an intellectual exercise, but it inevitably should change our heart. And when it changes our heart, it results in feet that move in ministry. For certain, in this story, there was one life that was changed, right? The paralytic's brought in, he's healed. But he's forgiven his sin. The word astonishment in verse 26 is is, um, kind of a a wow moment, if you will. Ecstasis is the, the Greek word. It's where we get the word ecstasy. From it's that the idea that it was just it just kind of blew their mind. They looked at this paralytic and, and went, I don't get I can do this without messing up my hair. They they look at it and they went, Wow, we don't understand this. What God has done. In the back end of that, they're filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Their minds shift gears. And it seems to defy the logic of the moment that this guy would get up. Jason Gaston says, don't settle for the mundane when Jesus offers the miraculous. So why do we settle for that? Because it's easier. It's more comfortable for us to, to settle. And so let me ask you a question. Do you have a mission? See, Jesus called us, just like he called the disciples in Mark 1, 16 and 17. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, at some point, every single one of us was like the man on the mat. We like to think of ourselves as one of the four guys carrying the mat, but every single one of us can put ourselves, if we've found forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. We've said, God, I confess my sin to you. I want forgiveness and I'm trusting what you did on the cross. If we are in that spot, we've been on the mat and somebody spoke into our lives and enabled us to see what God wanted us to see, that there was forgiveness found in Christ. There was one coworker we talk about who's your one, there was a coworker of mine that his one was me. And he shared with me at work. He shared meals. He invited me to church. He asked me if I wanted to meet some nice looking girls, all those kind of things. He knew that I needed Christ. I was trying to fill my life with a lot of other things, but he knew I needed Christ. And he was willing to work through the obstacles. He was willing to put up with my schedule. He was willing to put up with my, my, my trains of thought that went other directions. The arguments in the car about theology, my religious background, and even some pretty evident anti-Christian behavior as a young college student. You see, I thought I didn't need any more of God than what I had. And he stuck with it. All those things that 
would have been obstructions or obstacles to me coming to faith in Christ, Robert wanted to work through. Till his one was one to Christ. I had a 74 Corolla when I was in my first job in ministry. In 1987, I bought this car for $500. Bought it from a youth ministry friend who told me that, um, that this car was a youth ministry car. And I believed him for a while. Um, it did not have air conditioning. It was a four-speed. Um, it had four tires. The most part looked like a car. It had windshield wipers and it had a motor. Um, the motor burned about the same amount of oil as it did gas. But for a while, it transported me. Um, I left lots of people in, not in the dust, but in my smoke. But there was a point at which I took that car and parked it in a garage. Now, we lived in a, in a house that was owned by the church for a while, and we bought a different car right before our son was born. And so that was in the upstairs carport, but there was a garage on the first level. And we took the 74 Corolla and we parked it. Now, it didn't lose any of its tires. It didn't lose really anything. It was still the 74 Corolla mode of transportation that I bought for $500. But it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, which was transport me. We parked it. If we're going to be fishers of men, we've got to fish. You can't call yourself a fisher of men and not fish. Or you become just like the 74 Corolla parked in a pew with no results. God's called us to step out. You go, wait, I don't know that I can do that. I am too far gone or my life doesn't line up. I don't have enough knowledge or whatever it happens to be. Go back to John 21. We, we looked at that this past Wednesday where Jesus has this conversation with Peter, the denier. And he asks him three times, do you love me? And, and uh, if Peter, and if Jesus asks us the same thing, we'd probably be insulted by that. I'm sure Peter was. If I asked if I asked Debbie, you know, I come around the corner one day and I said, Debbie, do you love me? She said, yeah, I do. Do you love me? And I ask again, yeah, I told you I did. And then I asked her a third time, do you love me? What do you think would happen? Don't, don't answer that. It'd be tough, wouldn't it? For Peter... It just meant renewing his commitment. It meant renewing his life. And so what does Jesus do on the back end of that? Peter didn't say, hey, do I need to prove my love? Is that what you're, up? Is that what you're going for? And Jesus just reminded him of the same thing that he had asked him along the seashore three years earlier. Just says, follow me. Get in my dust as a disciple and follow me. What if Peter had said no? Changes the book of Acts. And so the question for us, if we're going to be fishers of men, are we willing to cast a, a net? 
Are we willing to expect God to do something amazing in our life under His miraculous favor or not? Is God really trustworthy? And so as we get ready to pray, I want to ask two things. One, if you're in this place, are you still the man on the mat? Have you been forgiven your sin? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Are you in here unforgiven, not knowing for certain if you died today, you go to heaven? Now I say, if you're in that spot, allow us to come beside you and help you understand who Jesus is and place you before him. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We'd love to explain what that means to you. So if you're a man on the mat, allow us to carry you and bring you to Jesus. There are others in this room who say, I'm not, I'm not the guy on the mat, but I'm, I need to have a, kind of a renewed mission. I, I want to ask you to do something. You were given a bookmark pledge card on your way in this morning as part of your bulletin packet. And if you don't have one, there's some on the front here, up on the stage and on, on the, the kneeling space down here in the front. And I want to ask you to do something. I, want, I asked you last week to consider who would be the one person that you'd love to see come to Christ and that you would be willing over a period of time to share with them what it means to have a relationship with Him. And so what I want to ask you to do is to write that name in the two blanks on that paper, on that bookmark. Obviously, one of them is a space that's smaller. The other one, that space for, for writing it is on the top of a list of scriptures. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is write that same name in two places. And then when we have our time of invitation, that one, that smaller piece, becomes a pledge card. That I'm identifying my one and I'm going to bring that person to the altar. And so during our invitation, I want to ask that you would bring the small piece here. But I'm also going to ask you to take the bigger piece that has the scriptures and put that together with the prayer guide that's, that's in the foyer and pray about that person. For 30 days, pray and read through those scriptures and see if God doesn't do something miraculous as we commit to reaching the one. To just going to find the one whose mat we can carry to Jesus. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.